It's good to see everybody this morning once again. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to the book of Matthew. It's been a little while since I've uh, done been up here and talked about Matthew, so I'm going to try to get our get us back on track here a little bit this morning. I will be in the second chapter of Matthew. Psalm 119.59 says, When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. In other words, the psalmist here is saying that we are not only to hear God's testimony, specifically in the Bible, but to do something in response to that hearing. Hopefully turning our feet... That is, our actions towards what God wants us to do. So, how does that play out in what we are studying here in Matthew's Gospel? So far, we've been told by Matthew, and he's revealed to us, the who, the how, and the why of Jesus Christ. We've learned who Jesus Christ was. We explored his genealogy first. We found that he was part of that regal kingship of King David in the Bible, and that Jesus Christ was here to fulfill the long-standing promise to bless all nations, not just the Jews, but you and I, through the promise given to Abraham. He told us how Jesus had come to this earth by virgin conception, a miracle that had never been seen before or has been seen since. And we pondered how that was necessary, how it created this God-man that makes our atonement possible and our reconciliation to a pure and holy God theologically possible. So now... And also we studied the why Jesus came. That was the last time that I was up here. Why did Jesus, who was in the form of God, empty himself, taking on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men and humbling himself to even death on a cross? Why did he do it? Matthew tells us that his mission was simple. It was to save his people from their sins. Therefore, Jesus, he did not come to boost our self-esteem. He did not come so that we could stay healthy or get wealthy or have our best life now. He did not come to be the theme of a good t-shirt slogan, a bumper sticker, or heaven forbid, even a good tattoo. He came and he died specifically because you and I are lawbreakers and sinners condemned by the wrath of God to an eternal death in hell and forever separation from the joys of God unless somebody greater than us had intervened. That's why he came. Because our sins before a holy God demanded justice. So that's a brief summary of what we've learned so far. So a good follow-up question would then be, well, what does somebody do with this knowledge of the work of redemption that God is enacting, that we're seeing come to fruition here in the book of Matthew? 
As we get into the text here in Matthew chapter 2, it's easy for the reader to just gloss it over as some added background information to Jesus' story. In fact, we're getting so close to Christmas, some may think that I'm coming here just to speak of the Christmas story of, of the wise men coming to visit the baby Jesus, or that we should say the uh, perhaps one- or two-year-old child Jesus. You know, we look at chapter 2, and we see an evil king. We see some wise men, priests, scribes, a star shining. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are mentioned. Discussions are had about the birthplace of Christ. Gifts are given. There's a time of worship, and everybody goes home, right? Or maybe if you dig a little bit deeper in chapter 2, you'll see what the word Bible commentary says, and that this chapter, it fills in some important setting information for the story about to be told, answering the question, from whence did our Savior come? Well, we knew how He came, why He came, why shouldn't we know where He came from, right? However, I'm going to propose this morning that after Matthew's introduction of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, He now is not only giving us more background information, but he's also giving us a preview of the answer, what does all this mean to me? How do I apply this in my life? I believe he is giving us a hint of Jesus' teachings, and we will see this later in the book. Namely, Jesus taught that there are only two responses to the gospel. It will either drive us or drive the hearer to rejection, or it will drive the hearer to worship. With that in mind, we're going to begin reading just the first 12 verses here of Matthew chapter 2. And if you have an electronic version, it's the English Standard Version. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall be shepherd of my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Notice they didn't worship Mary, they were worshipping 
Jesus, right? So they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So in this reading, I want to point out that we are just introduced here to three people or groups of people. We have King Herod, we have the wise men, and then we have the chief, chief priests and the scribes. Uh, these are also known as the chief priests would have been the Sadducees, and the scribes or lawyers, they would have been the Pharisees. So first, I, I want to just look at each of these individuals and the response that Matthew is showing that they gave to the message of Jesus Christ. You know, first I want to look at King Herod and his response to the news. You know, our first stop here, you know, I want to make note is that the King Herod that we're reading about, oftentimes people will read through the Gospel of Matthew or one of the other Gospels, takes you maybe about two and a half hours, and we feel like the entire story of Jesus Christ unfolded in about two and a half hours. That there's probably this one Herod because we see him at the beginning of the gospel, we see him at the end of the gospel at at the uh, crucifixion. However, we need to remember that the gospel here spans about 34 years, thousands of square miles of territory, and a lot happened in those 34 years. The Herod that we're talking about here was, in a way, the first of the Herods, Herod the Great. And he wasn't great because he was a really good guy and a really uh, good man that was here to support the ministry of Jesus Christ. Some believe that he got his title, the great, perhaps from Josephus, a first century historian, just because he was the first child of his uh, mother and father. His father had been a very important man in the Roman Empire, uh, he had gained a lot of wealth and, and, uh, and clout in the Roman Empire. And so the young Herod, at age 25, he had been put in charge of the Galilee region. And he was such a good tax collector, he was such a good politician, he was such a good administrator that the Romans loved this guy. Now the Jews didn't like him so much, he wasn't very nice to them. But the Romans loved him, and later they allowed him to have an army to recapture Jerusalem and then put him in charge of all of Palestine. So here, Herod is reigning over Palestine. What's the next thing a a despot wants to do or a ruler like this would want to do? Build, right? So he starts to build. He builds up the temple. He expands the temple to greater than it had ever been, right in time for Jesus to come in and preach in that temple. But he beautifies it, he expands it. But what comes with all this expansion and building projects? Taxes, right? So then he starts taxing everybody around him, and now the Jews really don't like this guy at all. But that's okay, because the Sanhedrin, when they rise up against him, he just kills 300 of them. When his, uh, his wife and his sons, who were really have more Jewish connection than Herod did, 
when he thought that they were a threat against him. That's okay. He had his wife's parents killed, then he had his wife killed, and then he had their two sons killed. We're not really talking about a nice guy here. (laughs) And later when he dies, actually his sons then take over, and that's where we get uh, uh, Philip, we hear about him, we get uh, Archelaus, we'll hear about him a little bit, we get Herod Antipas, who is actually the other Herod, Um, that's in the end of the gospel here. But Herod, he only reigned until about 4 B.C. So he, uh, this is not the same Herod all through the Bible. But he was so well known for his ruthlessness that even Caesar Augustus had a pun for him that he would rather be Herod's pig then his son, and essentially the word, the word for pig and son were very similar to one another, because he said, you know, his Herod as a Jew, he wouldn't touch the pigs, right, because they, they were not kosher, but he didn't mind killing his son. So Caesar said he'd rather be his pig than his son. So now you may understand the shock that must have come upon the city of Jerusalem when these strange men from the east arrived, And they're asking for the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, Herod had been anointed and appointed by the Romans to be the king of the Jews. He doesn't like people to question him. And here these men from the east are coming looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. Yikes. And that's what probably everybody in Jerusalem thought. They didn't know what this man would do at this point. And some wonder if the incredible inactivity that we see in the people in Jerusalem was in large part because they were afraid what Herod was going to do. So that's King Herod. Now let's look just briefly here at the wise men, or in some translations they're called the Magi. I I know, uh, I've heard some, they say, now, you know, you see the uh, manger scene and you've got the, the... the uh, wise men there with the shepherds and all that. Now, they actually came later. They weren't there uh, with the shepherds. But but these men, they had seen a star in their country, and they knew that the king had been born in the east, and so they were coming now to Jerusalem to see this king and to worship him. You know, we don't necessarily know, we're not told where they're from exactly, we just know that they were from somewhere east of Jerusalem. You know, many people think, and I tend to believe this, that they were the magi of that pagan priestly class back in Babylon. So they were Gentiles, but yet they had had close contact with the Jews during their captivity and afterwards. Because obviously these men, they knew about the Messiah that was going to come. And as I think about these magis, I think about these wise men, these would be those who were familiar with the Jewish Scripture, and perhaps they were enamored with the stories of the God of heaven who revealed dreams through his servant Daniel. And if you remember, Daniel was in charge. This used to be their boss, right? He was over all the wise men of Babylon. So why would they not be the ones who would come? You know, they, they knew of the God who had walked in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
You know, these were the people that knew the God that had the power to humble the King Nebuchadnezzar and that promised one day to cut out of the mountain that rock that would crush all the kingdoms of the earth and would then itself grow into a mighty mountain, into a mighty kingdom that would fill the entire earth. I believe it's those men that we're talking about here. You know, I believe that these were the men who over the generations had watched the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They saw kings and kingdoms rise and fall. These were the ones that perhaps at one point in time they had seen another man who was born under a, supposedly a great star. His name was Alexander the Great. And supposedly there was a, some celestial sign that happened the day that he was born. And then at a young age, he marched across the then known world and he conquered the world and he got to Babylon and he set up himself in Babylon. And one night... On Nebuchadnezzar's bed in Babylon, the Magi gathered around and they watched this 32-year-old man who they perhaps thought was maybe the Messiah die. He was a conqueror. He had been born under the star, but at 32 years old, he died on Nebuchadnezzar's bed. And I like to, I wonder if the Magi were not there. Wasn't him. Still waiting. So we'll explore in a little in a little bit further here, but I believe that these men were those that were prof, the prophet Daniel's understudies. They had a fire in their belly to see Jesus, and I believe that they were willing to travel as far as required to find him. In fact, you know, we as Christians today are largely insensitive to the fact that the entire ancient world was primed. They were on pins and needles in the expectation of the Jewish Messiah. You know, we often think that the, the end of the world, Jesus' second coming, is, is almost here. Well, these people, they had a sense that the Messiah's first coming was almost here. In his uh, commentary... D.D. Uh, Wheaton, he wrote uh, that not, it, this was not something that only the Jews had thought about, but the whole world was thinking about this in the first century. He says that Tacitus, the celebrated pagan historian, says, with the masses, the opinion was prevalent at that time that it had been predicted in the books of the priests that the East should at that time grow strong, which Suetonius, another pagan Roman, confirms and makes even more pointed. He says, though all the East there or through all the East prevailed an ancient and constant opinion that it was contained in the fates, that at that time those arising from Judea should become masters of human things. You know, these testimonies prove true, he says, that number one, the expectations of an arising prodigy from Judea were then prevailing through the East. Number two, that these expectations were founded on prophecy and sacred books. And number three, that the time for his coming was believed to be nigh at hand, the prophetic period about to be accomplished. Finally, Herod, through his great Sanhedrin, had immediate access to these very sacred books which these Roman writers are talking about. 
which predicted the very village where Christ was to be born. Just where Christ was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Uh, Wheaton, he gives this example. He says, as a singular illustration of this whole subject, I I quote the following. So vivid was the Chinese expectation of the Messiah at that time. The great, they're looking for, they called him the great saint, who Confucius says was coming, that about 60 years after the birth of our Savior, they sent envoys to hail the expected Redeemer. These envoys encountered on their way the missionaries of Buddhism coming from India. They were announcing an incarnate God, and they were taken to be the disciples of the true Christ and were presented as such to their countrymen by the deluded ambassadors. Thus was this religion introduced into China. The people in the first century, they were ready for the Messiah. So we have to keep that in mind when we see the response that we get from these three different groups. By 6 BC here, the world had been united under one Roman banner. They had a common language. It was Greek. Thousands of miles of roads had been built, improving the speed and safety of trade and travel. There was relative peace at the time. The temple at Jerusalem had just been completed in a more splendid fashion than ever before. And then that moment came. The cry of a baby pierced the darkness of humanity, transforming humanity forever. But how did this message get out? How did the people respond? The gospel writers, they answer this. You know, interestingly enough, the angels of heaven had announced Christ's birth to the shepherds of Israel. And they told Israel about this, but it didn't seem to create much of a stir. Some people, they believe that now one or two years has now passed and a light suddenly shines in the heavens to, of all people, these wise men, Gentiles of the East. And it's interesting, too, because their Gentile prophet Balaam had predicted this as he had looked over the tents of that infant nation so many years before. Of course, Balak, you know, he saw these, this camp of Israel coming out. They were invading his land. And he brought a prophet to curse them, send them back on their way. Of course, Balaam, he warns them that I can only say what the Lord will have me say over these people. I can't curse them if the Lord God of heaven won't allow me to curse them. And they try and they try and they try to curse Israel. But at the end, this is what he tells Balak, he says, He looks out over the camp of Israel, and when you look at the mountains and stuff, he's actually looking over the camp of Israel towards Jerusalem. And Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom will be dispossessed. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, uh, Herod was of Edom. 
Seer also, his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. Thousand, more than a thousand years before Christ, this prophecy was given looking in the direction of Israel. You want a really interesting archaeological story of this. Uh, there's a guy, he has a YouTube channel, uh, Biblical Archaeology, or Biblical Expedition Bible, that's what it's called, Joel Kramer. And he was saying that in the time of Jesus, right before Jesus, the Romans had built a road right by the place where Balaam had prophesied. You can go to the mountain that Balaam was likely standing on, and there you will see Roman road markers, mile markers. They had built the way unknowingly, for the Magi, for the wise men to come from the east. And they walked right past that point where Balaam had made that prophecy right into Jerusalem. So some they question, you know, whether this really was a star. I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion that it doesn't seem like this star behaved as a star. It moved in one direction, and then it disappeared, and then it moved in another direction. It stood over the place where Jesus was. I mean, it really doesn't sound much like a star. But an interesting thought is that the Shekinah glory of God had guided the nation of Israel to the promised land, right? And here we have, I I believe, the Shekinah glory of God guiding now the Gentiles to the promised one. Isn't that interesting? So that's, that's, I guess, what I tend to believe, that this wasn't necessarily just a star, but this was God guiding these men to the uh, infant Jesus. Nonetheless, the wise men, when they saw it, they followed it and eventually came to Christ with rejoicing. But how did Herod and the Jews respond? You know, Herod, he responded with a faked interest in an effort to try and hide his ruthless nature. And the Jews, though they were greatly troubled, perhaps because of Herod and worrying about his response, largely responded with indifference. Note here that nobody escorted or even followed these wise men. Perhaps they were afraid of Herod, you know, perhaps they were afraid to associate with these filthy Gentiles. Or maybe they just did not care as much as the rest of the world did. But can you imagine the scene here that the Magi have come? They have again announced that the Messiah has been born. This is the Messiah of the Jews. And nobody follows them. There's a little bit of questioning that goes on on Herod's part, but he just wanted to know where Jesus was to kill him. But nobody followed them. Nobody was excited about this except those wise men. It's interesting here when you look at just the verbs that Matthew is using. And this is what I said. Matthew is he's painting a picture for the two responses of Jesus Christ. I believe that's, that's one of the biggest things that we can get out of this portion of Scripture. There's a picture being painted of two responses when we hear of the Messiah. 
the wise men here, listen just to the verbs that are used. It, the wise men, it says that they came, they said, they saw, they came to worship, they listened, they went. Again, they saw, they rejoiced, they went in, they saw, they fell down, they worshiped. They had their gifts there. They, they opened. They offered. And then it says, being warned, they departed to their own country by a different, I dare say, a better way. They didn't go back to Herod. Just for a, you know, a little bit here, I just want to... Uh, so here, here's what happened after they left. You know, when Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And in verse 19 it says, And Herod died. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. Joseph, and then they came back from Egypt. So look at the verbs here that's used with Herod. He heard, he assembled, he inquired, he summoned, he ascertained, he sent, telling others to go and search and bring that I too may worship. Later he saw, he became furious, he sent, he killed. And then, like I said, in verse 19, it says that he died. What a contrast in two groups of people who heard the same wonderful news of Jesus Christ's advent into this world. What the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Matthew, is telling us here is that there's a world of difference between those who have a desire to see Christ and those who do not. Matthew here makes a clear distinction between those who went and those who only sent those who were inspired and those who only inquired, those who saw the star and those who had only heard of it. The end result was that one departed and the other died. If you want to know how hostility to the gospel and a ruthless nature will affect your relationship with Christ, Look no further than this imposter king sitting upon Christ's throne. If you want to know what cold indifference, the opposite of love, or perhaps fear will do, you need to look no further than the chief priests and the scribes that should have been jumping for joy, but instead were resting a little bit too comfortably in their religion and ritual. I want to take the study just a, one step further, and then, then we'll close. There's an interesting phrase here that the wise men introduce us to in verse 2. They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews. The phrase king of the Jews, it appears 18 times in 17 verses in the Bible with all of those occurrences in the Gospels. The usage here in Matthew 2, 2 is unique among those 18 uses and that it's the only time that it's ever said outside of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. 
So remember here that Matthew's primary theme is introducing the reader to the fulfillment of the heavenly king and his heavenly kingdom. And by him now bookending his gospel with this phrase, we see that this king came with a purpose. From the very beginning, he came with a purpose. In fact, we can get a decent view of the progression of the gospel by just looking at these four occurrences of that phrase, king of the Jews, just in the book of Matthew. You know, Matthew 2, 2, it says, you know, they ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose. We've come to worship him. Matthew 27, 11, it says, now Jesus, he stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You've said so. Same chapter, 29th verse, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews! Same chapter, verse 37, and Over his head they put this charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. In these four verses we see God come down to us in flesh. We saw deity become a curiosity. We saw his holiness mocked and rejected. And we saw his precious life ended in torture and crucifixion for the sake of our sins. Yes, Jesus Christ, he was the king of the Jews. But our comparison this morning between the eager wise men and the hard-hearted Herod begs the question, is he the king of you? There is hope. If you're one like that hard-hearted Herod or the indifferent high priest or the all-too-comfortable scribe, if anyone in this situation will deal with their problems and burdens in the manner that Jesus instructed us to, if you will dare to trade error for truth, darkness for light, guilt for justification, the flesh for the spirit, the God of this world for Christ, your heavy burdens for His light yoke, then you too will find Christianity to be peace, freedom, and joy. You will depart from sin and error just as fast as those wise men departed, thank God, via another way when they were warned. If so, you too will be going on a different way rejoicing as you go. And if you are in Christ this morning, it's okay to rejoice. If not, I'll only say that He desires not just to be the King of the Jews, but the King of you too. He won't turn you away.